1: Hey gang, welcome back to another week of Ranching Reboot. This episode sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Rancher. This week I've got a special treat for you. I have the new head of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association with me here on Zoom. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about their operations. So Don, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, I am really excited and glad to be here.
1: Well, I'm I'm excited to have you here. I'm glad we could finally make this work. We've been trying to schedule this for, I don't know, probably close to a month. You had some trips to Europe and uh, had a couple other things going on. I'm really glad we could finally sit down and do this.
0: I appreciate you communicating to our base group. I mean, it's so good to have communications open. So thank you for doing what you do.
1: Well, thanks for that. So before we get into it, and I I think we want to hear more about Don. So let's talk about Don and uh, let's talk about Shiffle Bean Farms and and where did you come from and how did you get to where you are today?
0: Yeah. So like, I guess most of our industry, we're a family farm. And the only thing different from our family farm than most is there's just a lot of us. Okay. So I farm with, uh, there's uh, seven brothers who farm together. Our wives, dad and mom started the operation. We now have five nephews, back into the farm with their wives so basically when you get right down to it there's a group of about 80 of us who are all farming together trying to make a living in ranching and as i've told many groups that i've been blessed to speak with over the last few years you know brian all of our chips are in this livestock business we don't have a 401k we don't have any other business entities all our chips are in this industry and when people ask well what would possess you to do something as crazy as get involved with NCBA or the American Angus or Certified Angus B. It's because our future depends on it, right? Making those good decisions and involving ourselves to make sure it uh, reflects on family values from a family operation like ours is everything. So that's kind of a, a quick rundown. Our operation just continues to grow as the family grows. We have absolutely no hired help. So everything done on this family farm is done by somebody who's got genetics in the game as well.
1: Very cool. Very cool.
0: How long has your family been there? So dad, and that's probably a neat uh, point of discussion and and great question, Brian, is dad actually started the farm when he was 24 years old, straight out of the service, did a two year stint in the service, but came to Kimball, Minnesota from Minneapolis, St. Paul. He had absolutely zero knowledge of agriculture, zero knowledge of livestock. And as you can imagine, date us back to 1955 when he started. What do you think the neighbors thought my dad's chances were of success coming from Minneapolis, St. Paul, and being just kind of thrown into the wildfire, if you will, in Kimball, Minnesota? Very
1: low. Very, yeah. very low.
0: And it, it went so far as to Brian on his first year there. Dad and mom were back, and the neighbors all had a little Christmas party, invited dad and mom. And part of the party was let's guess how long Frank and Frosty are going to make it here in Kimball, Minnesota. There are 20 ranchers there. The rest of the story, Brian, is the earliest, our longest length of time they were given is one year. But the rest of the story, and this is kind of the and I think maybe I'll dive into some of the things we talked to when you talk about innovation, what we need to do. The rest of the story is those people who bet on my dad not succeeding, dad now owns 19 of their 20 places. So I mean, just think about how the world has changed and dad has always been one and our family has always been one. If there is a better mousetrap, figure it out and make sure you're on the front end of this. And let's get on uh, the competitiveness of this industry and make sure we're doing things that make value to everybody.
1: Oh, you're you're opening up rabbit trails for me to chase, and I'm not sure which one I want to look at
0: quite (laughs) yet. But let me me just, just go on a little bit of history. So my dad was so innovative in the way he raised families. He did something I think a lot of people are catching on to now is he had a fast, hard rule that when we graduated high school, we had to leave for four years. And, And as I've reflected back, I've got now children at that age group, and I've actually done the same thing with my children is, it is amazing how your dad and mom's IQ changes. When you're 18 versus 22, you know, they get a lot smarter towards 22 versus 18, right? At 18, they're at their dumbest point possible in the history of their development right but when you turn 22 and seeing the world at a different vantage point all of a sudden dad and mom look a little smarter you're saying the world these bosses that you're working with in the last four years boy dad and mom aren't quite so bad as what we thought
1: yeah after after being in the navy for eight and a half years ranch life wasn't that bad (laughs)
0: exactly exactly and the other thing dad did brian just just to give you kind of a perspective is dad sent his sons out to universities across the fruited plains so we make i was born again i have uh, nine nine boys in the family no no daughters one brother passed away there's eight left one brother's not back on the farm farmed, so there's seven of us together to make sure you have the, the whole picture if you will but what he did is he sent every son out to a different animal science department across the land. So just to give you a flavor of what it's like. So my oldest brother went to Kansas State. Second oldest was actually a wrestler. So our family's deep into wrestling, and I mean deep into wrestling. He went to Iowa State on a full scholarship. Third brother went to the University of Minnesota. Fourth brother went to Michigan State. The fifth brother went to North Dakota State. The sixth brother is the brother that's not back on the operation but he went to what we call the school of hard knocks. He just went out there and just start, you know, became an entrepreneur on his own and, you know, nothing against school and he just did his own deal. I'm the seventh son, I went to Texas A&M. My brother, Tim, who's the eighth son also went to Texas A&M. My brother, Dan, the ninth son went to Colorado State. So you can just see when dad tries to get involved in an industry, He wants to hear it from all sides, all facets, all geographic areas. And to me, that's one of the brightest things he ever did is first he sent us away and then he sent us away to areas that got us different experiences that we could all bring back.
1: I think that's really, I think that's pretty valuable and very important to get out and have an experience 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 more of the world. And I was kind of sitting here wondering, you know, you had a brother that went to Michigan State and one that went to Minnesota State and you got sent to Texas. So what'd you do to make dad mad to send you all the way down to Texas?
0: <laughs> and dad let us choose. You know, we, every brother chose at the time. And And again, I went in kind of sequential order, if you will, from oldest brother to youngest brother. And I want you to date yourself back maybe a little bit. If you look historically on when they went to each university, That university was pretty dominant at the time. So what he basically did is he sent to the most dominating university at the timeframe that that son was available. I mean, you look back to Michigan State when my brother went and my goodness, it was dominant. Go back to uh, my oldest brother, Frank, when K-State was there, they were dominant. So it was kind of which university was doing the most good things at the time And that's kind of where we kind of focused our efforts. And I tell you what, you know, you asked that question, why Texas A&M? And true story here now, I've been blessed to be parts of lots of things. And one of the things I was asked for, is I was invited at the University of Minnesota, and they said, you know, before we get started, we're kind of doing brainstorming why, when University of Minnesota is just 70 miles away, why you went to Texas A&M? And of course, these were the PhDs asking it, right? So I put the PhDs right on their spot, and I turned the question on them. And I said, well, why do you think I went to Texas A&M? And I said, remember, I'm an 18-year-old boy at the time. And of course, they, in their university fashion, missed it by a mile, right? They started saying things like, well, Texas A&M had some incredible universities and the research projects they were doing at that time we're really, really good and blah, blah, blah. And I said, hold it, guys. You're missing the big picture. And that is understanding the audience who you're talking to at the time. At an 18-year-old boy, the reason I went down to Texas A&M was it was warm and girls wore shorts year-round. I said, get things down to basics. (laughs) You're missing the big picture on some of these things.
1: I had a feeling you were going to go there you're going to go somewhere that Texas was warm and the girls would wear t-shirts and shorts (laughs) t-shirts and jeans all year
0: but I enjoyed my time there very very much and I married my uh, found my wife down at Texas as well
1: I see I see so uh what what's your degree in from A&M
0: animal science
1: animal science okay so after you graduated from A&M then where'd you go
0: I actually, I was waiting on my wife, you know, I, I've always said, and I don't know if you subscribe to this, I did, I believe successful people get the big decisions right. You know, there's a lot of people who who worry about all this minutia and small things, but by and large, if you look at truly successful people, they get the big decisions close to right. And of course, no decision is more important than who you're going to spend eternity with, Right. So finding your wife is the most important thing. At that time, I went my first year out, I was waiting for my wife was getting her master's degree in food science at Texas A&M. So she wasn't my wife at the time, but I was clinging on to her to make sure she would become my wife. And uh, so I worked for actually Texas A&M's extension service for a year, a little year and a half, doing at that time, cutting edge research with ultrasound technology and live animals. So I worked and I traveled around the country collecting carcass data with ultrasound across basically the entire United States. First job out.
1: So we're talking, what, probably mid-80s?
0: It would be a late 80s. 89 is when I graduated.
1: Okay. I was trying to guess. I guess yeah, I, I, I graduated guess. high
0: school. 85, 89 is when I graduated college.
1: Okay. So... Driving around testing meat with ultrasound and waiting yep. for your wife to get her food. You said food science?
0: Yeah, food's master's in food science, correct.
1: Okay. So walk me through uh, after she graduated, then where do we go?
0: Then we moved up and uh, I said, you know, I, I love the seed stock business. We're a seed stock operation. Fascinated dad was saying at that time, you know, date yourself back to the 80s. The 80s were as tough a time as there was, at least for us in the cattle business. And his dad wanted us back. He said, you know, at this time, we just got to figure out a way to grow the pie before we can bring any more sons back. So figure this industry out a little more, get more exposure into the seed stock business and how we can do things more right so that we can grow this pie. So I actually went to work for a seed stock breed association called the North American Limousine Foundation. So I went up into Denver at that time. And I don't know if you're going to see the pattern here. So my wife is from South Texas. Okay. She went to College Station, which is north from where she's from. I moved her a little further north into Colorado. (laughs) And I don't know if you can see the trend on where I'm heading her, but I'm getting this acclimation process done, if you will, to get her moved towards Minnesota in a manner that kept her smiling. So I went to uh, North American Limousine Foundation, spent uh, four and a half years, primarily as their youth director, their junior director for, uh, I guess, three of those years, the fourth year as a membership specialist.
1: Okay. Did your wife notice that you're gradually moving her through colder and colder places, or was it just a frog in a pot and she didn't notice until you were in Minnesota and was wearing a parka?
0: You know, I thought I was being real smart, but I tell you what, she caught on when we. Uh, so here we are, coming from Texas, right? We're going through the Raton Pass. And I don't know if anybody's familiar with the Raton Pass, but that's where it goes over the Rockies and kind of heads into Denver. She was behind me, so I had the truck with the U-Haul. She was in the car following behind, right? So we go over the Raton Pass, come across, come into Colorado. I look in my rearview mirror she isn't there she was following me the whole way and she's not there so i pull over along the edge and i wait literally brian 30 minutes and here comes my wife scared to death she's sitting behind the wing, the wheel driving like 15 miles an hour over the rattan path she pulls over and i said jennifer what the heck did you run into something she said, I don't think we're making the right decision. And she said, it's cold here. There's snow here. I don't know what to do. So I had to give her a quick pep top talk to make it the last, what, 50 or 100 miles into Denver. But she caught on when she went over the Rattan Pass.
1: Okay. <laughs> so you said you're, uh, that was North American Limousine Foundation and you're youth program coordinator? Yep. Did I have that right?
0: Yes. Yep. You got it exactly right.
1: I guess that's kind of interesting. So what uh, what was your next step after that?
0: Well, the next step after that was I actually went and that's when the whole seed stock industry was changing around shows and pretty and how to make them uh, uh, win ribbons versus I was right in that transfer transformation of the seed stock business where EPD data all of that stuff. So I cut my teeth at the Limousine Foundation, probably during the most difficult time for breed associations, in that they were catching up with a membership, if you will, that was a little reluctant to use database decision tools, like EPDs involved in picking what the next sires were. So at that time, it also was moving towards, instead of winning shows and ribbons, really success at seed stock was about how do you make your commercial guys more successful right and so this whole idea of having a a commercial marketing person on staff at a breed association was taking hold in other words how do we make commercial guys who use our seed stock product more successful right How do we help them market their calves? How do we help them position themselves for more better programs? I was hired away from limousine to a breed association called the American Galvey Association. So right, same part of town or actually north part of town versus south. But now I was the director of commercial marketing, opening up a whole new area in the whole purebred seed stock market of instead of focusing on Uh, a large degree on what animals should do in the show ring and calculating point scores on who's the show bull of the year and all this stuff is how do we concentrate on the cow calf guys and making sure they're successful financially in marketing their calves so it was a it was a whole new world if you will in the whole seed stock business at that time
1: and what are we we're talking it seems like we're talking about like mid to late 90s right
0: yeah mid 90s That'd
1: be about 1995. That's, uh, yeah, I was just starting high school. So when you were heading down to Texas A&M, my dad was taken over this ranch. Yep. And, you know, we know what the financial climate was Tough. like there in the early and late 80s. Um, so my dad gets this ranch, fairly large land base that was, you know, degraded by invasive trees and overgrazing and didn't really have much water development and it was uh, 1985, and how do you stock a ranch with cows that you just got through, you know, through, through you know, trust and inheritance process, when interest rates are, you know, 20-odd percent, how do you stock cows? So, he never did. So, our operation has been a custom grazing operation wow. until two years ago, which is when I bought a set of cows, which was the first set of cows my family's owned since the 60s.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: And uh, well, you
0: understand exactly then that whole transition period that how difficult times were, why some of the sons had to go out and get other jobs. Then the industry was just shaking up at that time. Like I said, with EPDs. And I don't know if you recall the the beef cattle world, but in those nine early 90s to mid 90s we went through a transformation phase that if an animal was a quarter inch bigger than another animal, it was literally worth, you know, literally 10,000 a quarter inch, right? If they were taller, they were worth 10,000 more a quarter inch. So height was everything, big was everything, the exotics, the limousines, the Gelbys were coming in, taking over the world, everybody wanted pounds. And then about the mid 90s, CAB began to take hold, end product began to take hold, and this market went from a shift so that in Denver, when when I was checking cattle in, Brian,
1: Uh
0: take me back to 94, I would measure an animal and the guy, guy would say, Donnie, I think it should be a half inch bigger than what you just measured, okay? The following year, the industry had moved so dramatically, that same guy, I'm measuring the cattle, guess what he's saying? That's the other. way that animal should be a half inch smaller than what you just measured them because our industry had flipped over, and the, the simplest things like size just did a light switch change, and people went from wanting them taller and taller and taller to say, "Boy, we went way too nuts. Let's get back into some sensibility."
1: I I would kind of echo that, and I think some of that's even going on today. That we've gone too far the wrong direction with some of the things that we've been breeding for, like like size and and feed efficiency and fertility. And I think there's going to be a lot of correction coming pretty soon in the industry to correct some of those things.
0: Well, you're, you're right. And of course, that's the part of the seed stock business I was involved with is saying, how do you produce cattle mainstream for commercial guys? And for commercial guys, success is deemed on being good at lots of traits, right? You have to be good at lots of traits to have true success in the commercial industry whether an animal is a half inch bigger or a half inch smaller in one trait at one time really doesn't connect to the p l that being good at lots of traits the problem with the seed stock world at that time was is we promote extremes right right and we go after a trait and we chase it till we can have it beat completely to death right whether it was height whether like you mentioned weight. We went calving ease extreme in lots of places. The disciplined seed stock guy is the person who is doing 15 or 20 traits simultaneously, but boy, they aren't the sexiest looking cattle from a number standpoint because they don't have one number that just is, my gosh, he's a 180 for yearling weight or he's 200 for yearling weight. Now there's an animal I can sell, Instead, he's that animal that is above average in 20 traits across the board and maybe in the top 25% for all those 20 traits. But as you know, Brian, that's not nearly as sexy at times. Right. I'd,
1: yeah, I I'm thinking, you know, sometimes we measure a lot of traits, but sometimes I wonder what traits what what bearing those traits have on the real world on how cattle actually perform in a pasture. You know, I, I really wonder a lot of that stuff, you know, like, uh, you know, the feed efficiency EPD. How does that correlate to how those animals are going to perform in a pasture? Because it's my understanding that that test and that EPD was developed when the cattle are standing in a pen, they're being fed a ration, so everything can be measured.
0: Yeah, you're exactly right. Now, I will tell you, and there's, there's good news there. And that is, you're exactly right. So you have to do the tests where you can do them efficiently and effectively. And that's in a a setting that isn't the rangeland, right? But you want cattle that are efficient on the rangeland. The good news, and this is actually great news, and it's just coming out. So it's kind of new research, if you will. And that is what they're finding out is cattle that are efficient in the rangeland do line up somewhat with cattle that are efficient in a feedlot. And the correlation is somewhere between 0. 0.6 and 0. 0.7. Okay, so there's a 0.6-0.7 correlation, which means there's there's variation, right? Same animals aren't winning both places all the time, right? Right. But it but it does allow, and this is kind of what you have to do when you're when it's hard data to collect, like feed efficiency in uh, rangeland, is you have to say, okay, no different than the same way we did with ultrasound data collection on bulls is a much different trait than carcass data on steers, right? They're two different traits, right? right? One is ultrasound on bulls, the other is carcass on steers, they do correlate to about that same degree, by the way, about 0. 0.7. So an animal that's good at uh, carc ultrasound, seven times out of 10, it's good at marbling as well. Okay. Right. And so there's some slop in there, but you can still move a population generally in the right direction and that's where feed efficiency looks like it's coming down is it looks like we're going to be able to move improved efficiency on the range through selection at seed stock levels in more of a confined situation so there's hope there it's not perfect and what what i have a trouble and this is as you know this the most difficult time is doing the information gaps between cow-calf guys and feedlot guys, et cetera, it's hard for a cow-calf guy to see how those could possibly correlate. But I'm a data-driven guy, and if the data says they're correlated, they're correlated, right? The data drives the decision, and they aren't perfectly correlated, again, 0.6 to 0.7. But that means you can move changes in a positively right direction by selecting one way. Does that make
1: sense, Brian? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I guess I'm a little concerned because it takes so long to shift the genetics of our cow herd. You know, because, I mean, it it's a three-year program. From the time you make that breeding decision till the time that you could possibly see that thing on the rail, you're looking at a minimum of 26, 28, well, 24 to 26 just to grow plus the 9 to you know, plus the nine for breeding. So it's almost a three-year program for the time you, you know, pick out that bull to put her with the cow before you see what that progeny looks like on the rail. And then you make an adjustment. And then it's another three-year process before you see that. So it takes so long to shift our genetics in this industry. And I'm not going to say that I'm concerned about it, but I can see that there's some problems with, you know, we've we've ridden the train too far in one direction and it's just going to take too long to turn it around. And I, I guess I don't know what I'm trying to say. That's uh.
0: no, said- no, Brian, let me, ju- I think you're exactly right. And that, and that's the, that's the problem with genetic changes. And you said three years, the reality it's seven to eight years. So if you make breeding decisions, really the biggest impact it's gonna make is when those cows are in full production. So not just the calves, but those dams now are back in full production on the herd in their prime. And usually that's about a seven to eight year window, right? So before, if you're using a sire today, it's real impact in your industry happens eight years from now when it's, when those cows, when the, the factory has transformed, if you will, into the new genetics from those cows, right? That's when it's really starting to have a huge impact. And as you say, that's when once a factory's in production, it's hard to change the factory. So you have to be very diligent. That's why I said this whole idea of selecting for a single trait, whether it's feed efficiency, whether it's even carcass, whether it's all of these traits, to me, that is a, a huge major mistake. What you want to do is move everything directionally positive. And 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 to me, that's a big difference than selecting for a single trait and say, I'm all about efficiency or I'm all about carcass. If you look at, to me, fallacies in some seed stock programs, it's seed stock programs that have singular focuses. Okay. You know, If you go to a seed stock program and I don't, I, even if it's just range life, if you have a seed stock focus, seed stock guy who says, I don't give a darn about carcass, all I care about is pasture. Or if you hear a guy who says, I don't give a darn about pasture. It's the consumer that matters. All I care about is carcass. Or you hear another guy saying, gosh, feeding these animals is where all the dollars are. I'm just all about feed efficiency. Every, all three of those people are 100% incorrect. It has to be, how does it work for every single aspect of our industry from production at the rangeland to consumer at the other end, How do you directionally improve those animals from one end to the other? And that's where we miss so often in this world, Brian, is seed stock guys sell on how I'm different than the other guy, right? And so they try to be singular in their focus. Oh, boy, boy, if you buy animals from me, the cows are going to be so much better that I'm going to have the best cows in the world. Well, the best cows in the world, Brian, are only good if the consumer wants to buy them, right? Right. And
1: I, I would also say that there's, there's two ways to get good cows. You can buy the ranch they're standing on, or you can make your own.
0: No, and you're correct. But you have to buy genetics outside, usually, to get them. And so you want to buy from a seed stock guy, because ultimately that seed stock guy's genetics become your cow herd. Okay. They become adapted to your environment because you always wanna raise cows, if you will, in your environment or close to your environment, so they become adapted. But so what I, of course I'm biased because I'm a seed stock guy. I believe the single most important job a commercial guy makes from a genetic standpoint isn't looking at EPDs, isn't looking at all these things that our industry is telling them. It's find a seed stock guy who makes sense. Then buy from a seed stock guy who makes sense, not in marketing you something that you believe in, but marketing you a product that works for the full spectrum of the industry. So his cattle are in demand at every single level of our industry. I've
1: looked for bulls from producers as close to me as possible on 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 similar forage. With a very similar, with as similar of a program as I can, and my program is a uh, is pretty simple. We we do a lot of rotational grazing right now. I'm moving about every three or four days. Still supplementing with a little alfalfa because it's painfully dry. My cool season grass hasn't come on yet, um, and my cows basically live on salt and scenery. Fertility drives the bus. That's the number one thing I'm looking for. If uh, and this year we're planning on a 45-day breeding cycle and if we can't breed on grass salt and scenery in in 45 days I guess we can just go find a new job you know breeding the tough cows um, you know we, we talked about limousines and and Gelbies and the American Angus Association um, I I'm not that guy I'm I'm the Corriente guy <laughs> that's trying to take something that's that's already small and efficient and fairly fertile. And I'm just trying to upgrade that a little bit, put some more carcass size on it so we can carry a little bit more meat on the bone and still maintain, you know, a small fertile forage efficient animal that can basically live on salt and scenery.
0: Yeah, and again, everybody has their own program, but I always believe, and this is is a quote from my dad is, those that write the checks write the rules. Okay. Yeah. And so what that basically means is, whoever your customer is, who is who you should respond to. Okay. Okay. And so and so that gets lost a little bit in lots of cow calf guys who get caught up in uh, their own world on the ranch and say, by gosh, all that matters to me is how these cattle perform in my within my fences. Well, it's true until you have to take them to a marketplace and then sell them, right? And and that's what I I believe that that's where the sense, the common sense has to take back hold. And it sounds like you're moving your animals in a market-driven way that way as well. But it needs to be, if the animals that work best for you, the person you sell to is discounting them or doesn't want them, then that poses a problem because... When you're in the wrong point of view from a just volume or demand standpoint, your price can go the wrong way in a, in a hurry. So you have to be in a demand part where somebody's saying, I'm willing to write a check for those animals. And then those same feeder who buys your calves has to have that same mentality with whoever's buying his, which is the packer saying,
1: I better have at least
0: cattle that the packer is willing to pay equal to or more value. To keep my family in business. And, and, and the same thing goes to the consumer. The packer better be responding to the consumer saying, boy, I better produce something that you have in mind or the whole thing breaks down. And all of a sudden, and this is a quote from uh, Henry Ford, I believe it is. And I, and I think it's a great one. It says, it doesn't matter how you produce a product efficiently if nobody wants it. Yes. And, and that's sometimes what our industry falls into, they get, they fall into this mindset, I'm just going to do things the way that's important to me, myself, and at my operation. But if you're producing a product and you're doing it incredibly efficient, but nobody wants it, the future of that product probably is not good. And and, and that's the mindset I like to bring to everybody, Not, not that I'm criticizing your program at all. I'm just saying, that's the mindset I think needs to drive our industry for long-term viability. We can have a few guys who manage their own places that way, but eventually if you lose track of who your customer is, who his customer is, who his customer is, eventually our industry as a whole begins to shrink down because we're not responding to the market signals out there. I don't know if that makes sense, Brian, but that, that, that's the mindset our family lives by.
1: No, no and your points are well taken. And the packer and the feeder in the backgrounder are, are not my customer. My customer is my local community. I feel that it's more important to make sure my family's fed my community's fed before my animals would go to, you know, that the normal commodity production system, I'm planning on direct marketing as much as possible. Sure. You know sure. That that's and that's what I want to do and that's more of I'm not going to say that I'm anti-feedlot but I don't see I don't see my animals need to go stand on stand on a feedlot for 90 days and eat corn to reach their full potential. I I want to do things a little bit differently and that's why I think this industry is great is that there's space sure. for all sorts of operations and and all sorts of product in yeah, we- all sorts of product and i think where a lot of things are going in the future like with the future generation of consumers the ones that are just now starting to spend exert their spending power in the marketplace i think they're really demanding a lot more transparency than we're giving them now like in the whole beef production cycle from from breeding ground beef in a package i think our customers deserve a lot more transparency than they're getting now
0: yeah i I couldn't agree with you more i think that's exactly right and 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 for some reason there's a portion of our population who when you talk transparency that's a red letter word a little bit to some of them they're saying by gosh i do things the way i want to and i don't want to tell people i don't want to explain it but the reality is is uh, if you're doing things the right way. And I believe our operation is it sounds like you believe your operation is then you shouldn't have anything to hide if you have something to hide that you don't want to show or you believe shouldn't be transparent then that's probably a wake-up call that says maybe that practice isn't the way it ought to be done right and to me that's a healthy thing there's some ranchers and farmers look at transparency and see it as a, a detrimental thing but if you flip it around and think of it from a positive viewpoint, what it does is it tells you, it basically puts the old thing, and I'm sure you've seen this or heard the statement, but if you're not willing to do it in front of mom, maybe you ought not be doing it, right? And, and that's a little bit of what you're getting at. And, and I think you have to stand behind your practices as do they make sense in front of mom.
1: Right. How would mom feel about this?
0: Exactly, exactly. And and, and to your point, there's different moms out there, right? There are moms, and and this is the part that our industry misses so badly, and you said it very well, is there are different ways to raise cattle that may make sense for different moms, for lack of a better term. And I don't mean mom in the the female side, just mom and somebody you want to do things in front of some people will look at your system and say, my goodness, that's exactly the way, you know, apple pie mom ought to be right. Right. But in a world, there's another big chunk of the world that many people miss. And that is there's a bunch of people who economics is incredibly important to them and to be able to buy beef and feed beef to their family isn't just a function of checking these boxes of all things that, boy, I want this, this attribute that costs more money, and I want this attribute that costs more money, and I want this attribute that costs more money. To a big chunk of our producer our consumers out there, the economics are such as, I wanna do everything as close to right, but it has to be done in a manner that economically makes sense to my family, to make sure beef retains the center part of the plate, And isn't one of those things like, unfortunately, lamb and others have taken place where it becomes a a specialty on the side. So some of the management practices that some people are opposed to, like cattle feeding or processing manners very efficiently in a a manner, are the very reason that beef is economical enough that it retains its spot in the center part of the plate that allows masses of people to afford the great product of beef to eat once, twice, maybe even three times a day.
1: I feel sorry for somebody if they're only gonna eat beef like once or twice a day.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I thought you were gonna say
1: once or twice a week. I was like, man, that's a a sad world.
0: Yeah, and so I, I think we have to keep that whole perspective in mind. Not that, again, I love capitalism, right? And I love the marketplace deciding you saying, you know, there's a need here in my community that I can process these beef and sell them locally and keep them. God bless you. I guess you want to have all those opportunities, but don't let somebody's mindset or way of doing keep others from doing probably another method that is equally important to a whole another subgroup of producers that may not live in your community. You know, I went to, uh, I think you knew this because we were talking. I went to London a month ago or three weeks ago or two weeks ago. I can't remember. Time has blurred on me. But it was amazing how transformative their conversations have become, Brian. Okay. So when we were heading there, okay, everything they were going to talk about, everything was going to be talking about sustainability, climate smart. All these kind of buzz, red words, if you will, to many producers in our world, but are very important to the economic community. That's what all they were going to talk about. By the time we got there, what had occurred? War broke out on their land, right? Yeah. The war has broken out. It's broken down their food processing systems, right? So it went from talking about climate smart and sustainability and transparency to guess what became the number one topic while I was there, never intended to be discussed.
1: Uh, I'll take food shortages for 200.
0: Yeah, food security. Yes, how do we ensure we have the food we need for our population? And guess what? The world turned upside down because guess who the UK's biggest suppliers of food are?
1: Russia and Ukraine.
0: Russia, Ukraine and throw in China. Okay? Those are their three biggest relationship people. Now, if you're worried about food security, how concerned are you to the relationships that you have with those three countries?
1: I'm not cuz I planted a big ass garden and I've got cows. <laughs> but, but if but... I was if I was in England, I might have a little bit different of a view.
0: Yeah, and and that's where they have flipped since our discussion when we were heading over to when we arrived, all of a sudden now they said, you know what, food security is important. We better start doing business with those that have the same shared values as we do so that overnight our world food security doesn't get disrupted because they decide it's okay to kill babies or they decide it's okay to kill children to take ground, right? And all of a sudden, you have to do things that aren't in the best interest of food security. And so their relationship, kind of like you're doing with your local community, has forced a change in their mindset that said, you know what? Should we be doing business with China, Russia, Ukraine, or is it wiser for us to doing our primary business with the United States? Long term, which makes greater sense if food security matters most?
1: Dealing with somebody that has that you share values with and you share common goals with rather than somebody that's just simply the cheapest source of that commodity.
0: And exactly. So it flipped over entirely. And what what I'm telling you though there though, they were they were the most cutting edge. I don't know. That's probably not the right word. They were on the front edge of all these add value, climate smart, all these kind of things. All of a sudden, when the world changed just a little bit. Okay, all of a sudden it was like, how do we just feed our people? It was nice to talk about climate smart beef, for uh, you know, uh, natural beef, and all these other kinds of beef. But when the when the going gets tough, it came down to let's make sure we can feed our people. And you never can lose sight of that big picture that as you're trying to check these boxes here and these other crazy boxes over here. If you aren't on your baseline, have how do we feed people efficiently, eventually you get in trouble. And that's what's happening over at UK. I don't know if that, if that if I'm connecting, maybe I was not making any sense at all.
1: Oh, no, it it makes perfect sense to me. And I hope it makes sense to the listeners because it's, it's kind of a subject. It's a topic that keeps coming up is, you know, it, we're not seeing a lot of it in the news, you know. President Biden has been on the media saying there could be food shortages. When a Democratic president gets on the media and says there's going to be food shortages, even if they only say it once, you need to sit up and you need to pay attention. Because that's a serious, serious thing when the president says there could be food shortages. And you'll need a plan for that. And it doesn't matter if he's talking about food shortages this winter or next year. We we have to plant for that plan and plant for that right now because you know growing seasons are limited. There's you know, you grow your stuff in the summer. You're
0: 100 correct.
1: You yeah. know, and by the time people see that there actually are going to be food shortages and that it's real, it's going to be too late to go plant wheat, corn, barley, and oats, or, or even probably some cool season vegetables. So like worried about food security now is the time
0: (laughs) yeah and uk again got a big uh, eye-opening experience when war broke out on their continent and the relationships they had with their primary food suppliers was probably not very strategic or wise and same thing with their you know the other one is energy security right those are the two big ones and who are their who's their energy security with russia darn i mean
1: all that talk dirty about, coal, we can't keep of, digging up all that dirty coal. We got to burn that clean natural gas.
0: And talk about being a short-sighted mentality. The only hope I saw with the politics, and of course, I'm, you probably figured out I'm not as political as I probably ought to be. But uh, the reality was really right in their face. That you know what, when you have food shortages, using your term, Brian. You usually don't get elected. If, you're, if you were in charge when a food shortage came along, it's hard to get reelected. And that's what's driving politics right now is it's not worrying about the people as much as if this breaks out, the odds of me getting reelected go down substantially. And I do not want that.
1: I've heard it said that your big major cities on the coasts only have three days of food. And the average person, if they miss three meals in a row, that that's basically panic for the average person. So we're we're between three days and three meals away from mass panic when the shelves start to go empty. And I I really wonder if we're actually going to see that coming, or if it's just going to blow up in our faces.
0: And I don't know. I but and again, this goes back to my point, probably five minutes ago, Brian, and that is don't lose sight of the united states beef producer as being the most efficient producer of food okay don't lose sight of that don't don't fall victim to somebody saying oh let's check this crazy box or let's check this crazy box at its base if you cannot feed the world efficiently or effectively you're not going to be in the driver's seat of food production and right now u.s producers i'm talking cattle producers i'm talking farmers there are none better by a long ways and we've kept our focus on how do we raise things in in a smart manner in an economic or an environmentally friendly manner but most importantly what i can do and this is just crazy when you go over to europe or brazil or uh uh africa when i can tell you brian that our cattle can get processed weighing over 1,350 pounds at 13 months of age, take everything out of the equation, that's an impressive feat for our beef industry from a cost-effective food supply production standpoint. And if we can make it taste good at the same time, which we do, boy, the United States food system is in a very good position. Well, I,
1: I would question how long we can continue to produce animals that big, that young, using – they're not going to grow that big on grass. Nope. Like, we'll never get the genetics to grow that big on grass. So nope. to get them that big that fast, that requires a lot of high energy, high energy forage and grain, right? You know, a lot of feed, a lot of corn that's really, really high in bricks, so they're gaining a lot of weight. There's also, you know, a sector of the industry that still does growth hormones, still does growth implants, which is basically injecting estrogen into steers to make them grow faster. We talk about sustainability and the bedrock of sustainability is keeping the small American farmer and rancher, the small cattlemen in business. And, you know, over the last 35 years, we've done nothing but see the producer's share of the beef dollar erode and get less and less and less. Inflation drives our costs up and up and up. So every year we have to find more efficiencies or some other way to cut costs in order to stay in business, you know, facing inflation and basically a stagnant cattle market it's not like our property taxes go down to reduce that bill. It's not like pickups get cheaper. It's not like fuel gets cheaper. It's Right,
0: right.
1: You know, none of these things get cheaper, but beef price basically stays the same, our inputs keep going up. So I feel like we're we're close to a breaking point with the cost of inputs, the cost of of farming, not just in fuel and in herbicides and and fertilizers but also in transportation of those products. I think that, I, and I think, I feel that, you know, the more those things go up, the more, the more cracks are going to start to appear in the current beef production model that we have, where we concentrate cattle and then we ship in feed from hundreds of miles away to these animals. I start to think, you know, with all the impotence increasing input cost you know we talked about Ukraine the thing we didn't mention is you know Russia and Ukraine supply a lot of natural gas to Europe okay so what does that have to do with farming in America well the natural gas a lot of that natural gas that goes to Germany goes through the Haber-Bosch process and gets turned into fertilizers and insecticides which they in turn export to here so you know Input cost skyrocketing, diesel fuel skyrocketing, transport cost skyrocketing, but fat cattle are, you know, they're less than they've ever, they're, they're not any more than they've ever been. So I, I start to wonder if, you know, are we still aiming at the right targets in the beef industry or are we aiming at a target that is going to be five miles off by the time we take this next left turn in the industry at the end of the
0: year? A fair, fair question. First, let me just push back a little bit. And, and, and again, maybe it's because uh, of my operation, who I am. So everybody's got a selfish interest based on who they are, right? That's the first thing you have to understand is if somebody says, boy, I'm coming to be completely unbiased, everybody is trained by where they came from, right? And their background all, of who they are. right? Every
1: one of us has a built-in bias.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I, let me just say that up front. But the one thing that I would push back on is when you say small producers is everything. It really is every producer you want to be successful at every size, every level. It's not just small ones. It's all, all producers because there may be some efficiencies for a midsize producer in this area, et cetera, to make enough dollars for a living. So I think it's all producers you want to be successful. I hate this idea that the world has gone where they pick out either a certain race or a certain sex and they decide let's make the world focused on making that little portion of the world better, you know whether it's a black person or a red person or an Indian person or whatever. We want to make everybody better, right? We want to make every producer better too, as well, on the cow side. What what I'm what I'm going to tell you, and you may be surprised at, is the world is changing more than you think with regard to what you said. So if you look at an operation like ours, so we feed somewhere around twenty thousand head a year okay almost all or actually all of our cattle come from our customers calves so we sell them bulls okay sell them the genetics then we buy back the genetics after they raise them feed them out and merchandise those animals based on the value of those genetics does that make sense to you what we're doing with you 100 okay so what we've done and it's and it's 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 very different. So the old day of feeding animals saying, like you said, you know, okay, it's 180 days, they go and then we feed them corn. That's unheard of in our industry where I'm at right now. 75% of what we feed our cattle up here in a finishing ration are byproducts, okay? They're products that had a other purpose, would have been basically discarded or used in almost a, a garbage-type manner. That we are flowing through the cattle to get them the energy and nutritional needs to finish them. So, we're talking things like ethanol byproduct, right? Wet cake, okay? Okay. Huge chunk of that. We're talking things like wet beet pulp, okay? So, you go through a sugar processing facility. When you take the sugar out, you have wet beet pulp left. That's a huge component of what we feed up here. We look at products, and I don't know if you know this, now it's something your listeners will know is Minnesota is the sweet corn capital of the world, okay? So we have sweet corn plant waste. So when they make sweet corn, imagine the shuck, it comes in there, they have to shuck it off, they have to take the corn off and you're left with the ear with just a little bit of the really good stuff. I don't know if you've ever eaten corn on the cob. The stuff right next to the ear is the really good stuff. That is stuff we get that we feed to our, animals so it's this whole transformation of it used to be we just fed them corn boy corn's a lot of things that we don't feed them we're on a finishing diet that is really really efficient because it's products that nobody else can feed and what you have to keep in mind the goodness of a beef animal is that rumen and that rumen can feed it's it's what i call the magic box right it's the magic box you can put things in that create high value protein that nobody else has. So we can take things like sweet corn waste, right? Shove it in that magic box and get out beef on the other side. We can take wet beet pulp, which up until uh, you know 15 years ago was being plowed into the ground just as a waste that we're feeding into those animals to get it to produce high quality, high grading beef. So I think you gotta let The marketplace, if you will, figure it out. And the great news about the United States as it is, hopefully, and currently, and it's going to stay that way, is if you allow capitalism to take hold, creativity follows. And creativity allows people to look into products and means of managing things that gets you a product in a manner you wouldn't have dreamed of a decade ago. The other thing I'll tell you, Brian, it goes into your question on fertilizer, is we've also changed our, the way we feed cattle in that once upon a time, we fed stuff where manure wasn't important, now manure is as important as an outcome as beef, and that sounds strange to a lot of folks, so we're feeding our cattle in slatted barn facilities, okay, where the manure that's created from the animal, okay, So, you're feeding an animal year round, let's say in this slatted barn, right? An animal unit now produces almost $100. Let that absorb a second $100 per animal unit just in manure value net. Okay. So, you talked about those high prices for fertilizer, that other. So, now an operation like ours is using byproducts, right? So we're not using corn we're using all these byproducts from 75% of it raising this beef in an efficient manner getting at 13 months of age 1350 pounds we're creating our own fertilizer right our nutrient for the soil that we're putting in in a close proximity we are not having to ship it all the way across the world like you explained right it's coming from our slap barn two mile circle if you will to the ground right there Redeveloping corn, and for what most people don't mo- know if they're not farmers, is if you look at natural fertilizer versus uh, chemical fertilizer, natural fertilizer is 10 t- 10% better than the fertilizer you buy in the chemical format. So you get an extra boost there as well. So my, my plea to the industry is don't try and dictate, if you will, what system you believe or perceive to be better. Let the marketplace, let capitalism, let good old-fashioned America, if you will, allow producers to sort through what works and doesn't work and come through with a system that nets out the best for producers. And so that's where I come from.
1: Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So ready to get into some things that might be a little bit uh, more... uh, Oh, we'll just jump into it. So some of the questions that, that the fans have been asking me that uh, they've expressed. That they wanted I've to I've never had to.
0: fans. You actually have fans? Oh, that is neat.
1: Seven or eight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes, like, you know, there, there's haters and there's fan club members. Fan club members, you got to really, you know, you got to keep them happy. You got to work. Yep. The haters... I like the haters sometimes almost a little bit better because they follow you around and pay attention to everything you're doing and just chirp at you all the time. Yep. But you already get a live in their head rent free. So <laughs>
0: um,
1: so I guess where, where we'll go is a, a fan who is a small custom grazer in Nebraska. And yep. he said, you could just replace this with small producer anywhere. Yep. As a custom grazer, why should I be a member of NCBA? What has NCBA done for me in the last five years? And what will NCBA do for me in the next five? Sure. And I, I, yeah. and I totally nope, don't want to get into the past.
0: No, nope, great question. Great question. Here, and here's the dirty secret that most people don't tell you. As NCBA, we live or die by our policy book. Okay. So it's the do's and don'ts and what we should promote and how we should promote it, right? So it is, if you will, and I don't want to sound sacrilegious, but it's the Bible, if you will, of how we address issues. Those issues come to us by what our members tell us. So we'll get together twice a year, one time in the summer, one time in the wintertime. And our members, so they become members of NCBA. So as you said, fan club, if you will, but they are the people who we have to respond to because they are the dues paying members of our organization. They decide what policies we should pursue and how we should pursue them. So if you're a small farmer in Nebraska and you want your viewpoint, let's, say, let's just say, I don't care what the topic is. Let's say you say, NCBA isn't doing something the way I thought it should be done, okay? what how how does my mind get changed as an officer of ncba on what we should do differently the membership tells us right so then if if joe Blow nebraska producer has enough people who think like they do and i'm suggesting i don't know this person at all but let's say they there maybe there's tons of them if they become the majority member So if more people think like that and believe that's the way we ought to do it, that becomes the rule of the land, if you will, for me to carry out. I am not a king of a kingdom, if you will. I don't go out and say, you know what? Sheeplebine's now in charge. And because Sheeplebine's in charge, we're going to do this, this, and that. We do it exactly the opposite. We're saying, well, I am taking over the reign, so I am now the person who directs traffic, but the traffic is directed, if you will, based on what our producers say we should go. So if you look at our the, the most recent meeting, and we probably had our most controversial discussions over marketing, right? How we should market cattle. It was not, it was not Don Schieffelbein decreeing, this is how we shall do it. It was a grassroots discussion. And I don't know, Brian, if you've ever gone to an NCBA meeting or ever have been at. I mean, it is a, it is a wrangling effect. So if you were to, let me just take you to this meeting. Okay. It is a standing room only meeting on marketing. I mean, standing room only. Okay. You are given a card representing the number of members that you uh, carry behind the card. So everybody who has a card represents equal numbers of members, right? Okay they are the ones who get in there and decide I think the, the policy should state this and they'll say well I don't like that word I think it should state this or I think it should be reworked to this in the end cards go up producers decide which policy we should pursue and I don't get a chance to veto it I don't get a chance to say boy you dummies you made the wrong call That is the policy our organization pursues. And so the bottom line answer to somebody, and this is where I think our industry has gone off kilter. I really don't believe. When somebody disagrees, when you disagree with somebody, let's just say America. Let's say you're not happy with the way America's going. And I'm probably a little bit in that camp, all right? If you look at some of the major things, I'm going, boy, that's not capitalism to me. That's not marketing the way it ought to be to me. The last I sucked thing, up
1: on guns and ammo and seeds.
0: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the last thing you want a citizen to do is run away from the process. Okay. Because if we run away and say, you know what? America sucks, so I'm not gonna vote anymore. What happens to America?
1: The people that go out to vote get their they get what they want.
0: That's exactly the way NCBA works. So These guys who have criticisms of NCBA, and I'll be very, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. Do you think I have agreed with every decision NCBA's policy says?
1: I'm just going to take a guess and say no.
0: No. Do you think my family agrees with every policy that NCBA has passed? Probably not. Does that give you the wisdom? Is it wise then for you, if you disagree with an issue, for you to say, you know what? Therefore, I'm not going to be part of that organization that has the most influence on how business is carried out on the legislative front on the national scene. Is it wise for you to say, you know what, because I've disagreed with them on that one issue or those two issues, I'm going to take my marbles and go home. How smart is that? What should they be doing? They should be getting their neighbors, right? Okay. Those that think like them to say, you know what? These guys are screwing up more than they ought to be, right? We need to get back in control of our organization because the organization is the National Cattlemen's Organization, right? Right. Take back control of it. If you think an issue should be done differently, get the majority to agree with you and you become the driver of a new path down a new direction that says we should do it this way don't do the opposite the opposite is actually counterproductive right it actually goes the wrong way so at one point you were part of the organization so let's say there was a close to balance but if everybody was like you who when they lost on an issue went home the organization actually goes in a further wrong direction right by definition it has to mathematically right So what I'm telling and that's what I'm going around across the industry saying is we're here to serve you. If you think we ought to be doing things differently, become a member and tell us how we should be doing things differently. I'm all ears. I'm here to carry out the orders that grassroots tells me to carry out. Okay, gotcha. And let let me just add one thing, Brian, and I want you to take this and it goes back to our family outfit because I know you're a big family man. I want you to think about this. You heard our family operation, right? All the brothers, right? All the sister-in-laws, right? The nephews, their wives, et cetera, right? There's basically 80 some of us, right? Right. Let me ask you this. Do you think we always agree on everything?
1: I I would probably say that if you can get 50 of you to agree to the basics of one thing, you're doing great.
0: That's exactly the way our industry works, and this is what dad pleads with us all the time. If it comes down to, if I'm on the losing side of an argument, I quit the business. Is that good for Schieffelbein Farms business? No, it's actually counterproductive. We are the best. When we were all together, arguing and debating discussing coming out with what the best answer ought to be right. And then going with whatever the majority decides, because you have to come up with a solution somehow. Somehow you have to decide which direction we're going. And what we do often, and, I, and I'm actually taking that uh, mindset a little bit to NCBA is, sometimes there are issues that there's enough disagreement on that maybe there shouldn't be an absolute directional way forward. Okay. Sometimes, you know, we don't, In our family business, we don't go down a route where it's 51% typically agree on something because that means 49% of the people who are also smart people may not agree with that same process, right? So we try to push more consensus thought than we do absolute majority thought. And there's a difference between those two. And I think uh, our industry sometimes goes with simple majority thought and not consensus thought. And there's a huge difference. And I I don't know if you can tell, but I'm more of a consensus guy who says, you know what, let's just as a group decide, does it make sense to go down that road in that arena? Or should we back up and go a little bit different or or maybe avoid that conversation altogether if there's no productive outcome?
1: I'd much rather have somebody agree with me 80% then only agree with me
0: 51%. Agreed. And, and that's where, but again, to me, the whole key is this idea that the smart answer when you disagree with somebody is to disengage and quit the organization. I plead with people, just think if we do that in America, just think if we get frustrated in this whole central belt of America, Okay almost to, you know right the whole center part of the country who sometimes doesn't see with the left and the right coast right if we decide just to say you know what not playing anymore we're sick of it we're going to just stay home that would be a terrible terrible thing i agree i agree so okay
1: move on to move on to something a little else um, Another fan question. What is the NCBA doing to ensure a sound ecological land management legacy in the beef
0: industry? Yeah, and this, this goes back to our capitalism, if you will. Okay, and, and I don't know if you'll agree with this. I don't know if your listeners will agree with this, but I strongly agree with it. I believe if you let producers who are making their living off the land, decide how to manage the land, they figure out really quickly how important it is to take care of the land. And that comes straight through to our family operation, okay? I can look at the difference between our family, the way we manage our land, and the state run land, which is right next to us. right next to us. So we have state purchased land right next to us. We got family run land right side by side. Those that know that the land has to provide for them economically, take care of that land like it is their legacy, using your terms, like it is their future, because guess what? It is. It is. That's the. That's the thing. If if our land can't produce the corn we need it to produce, or produce the pastures we need it to produce, we suffer the consequences. And again, Brian, you go right across the fence line. Okay. So in the state of Minnesota, we have the government buying up lots of land for the purpose of hunting, or so that the community can enjoy it. What becomes of that land, you suppose?
1: Uh, it doesn't get managed and it generally would not generally i shouldn't say that it won't be managed well won't have a common vision for management if it does it never gets executed because it's always in review and environmental challenges the people that use it that don't have any skin in the game don't respect it and will deface property and leave trash like i mean that's that's just how it goes right
0: and then that's and then that's what that's the basis for what i believe strong and you can see it in real terms if you come out to kimball minnesota just look at the fence line and look to the left look to the right and what's ironic and i really believe this is ironic this land was purchased okay so that our consumers our citizens can hunt it it's become it's so unmanaged nobody can hunt it successfully because guess what Anybody can go in at any time, any place with a gun to hunt whatever is open at the current season with no management around it whatsoever. So if you're going in there to hunt deer and you want to put up a stand, nope, you can't put up a stand. Okay, it's against the rules. You have to kind of walk in there, but you don't know if Charlie's going to come walking in behind you or if Fred's walking in front of you. So here we are as a private landowner right next to land specifically purchased specifically purchased so that people could hunt. What do you think the hunters come over to our place and beg?
1: Can we please hunt your land?
0: Yeah, because you will manage it. You'll say, no, you only get this 40, stay on that 40. You know, It's gonna be managed correctly. There's gonna be good grasses that come over. So the, the deer always leave the brush land because that becomes completely over with brush, right? The public land and guess where they come to eat?
1: They come to the well-managed pastures. I've seen it happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it, it's like the government has lost their mind and saying, you know what? If our cows like to eat good grasses, do you think the deer like to eat good grasses? Yeah. Do you think all the wildlife like to eat good managed uh, rangeland? Absolutely. So this whole idea is, I believe in capitalism, and I believe the best way to allow land to be managed properly is to make sure there's economic value for those people who get to own and manage it and pass it on
1: you just made all three of the deer hunters that listen to me click this sucker off because they all just said there's no way that that cow that deer like to go where cows are
0: (laughs) oh just come over to our place and you will see them and i'm not exaggerating by nearly hundreds they'll come out in groups of hundreds to come out and especially what they like is as a good alfalfa producer. Okay. We have to let that alfalfa grow up about eight inches after September one, we can't cut it. So we let it grow up to eight to 12 inches, have a stand there so it can regrow next spring. The deer, when the going gets tough, and that's the key. People like to talk about wildlife on the average, but really, you really want to manage wildlife when they're at their most difficult times when times are the most difficult when they're about to live or die okay they come out to our place to live okay they come out to those alfalfa fields where they can dig down into the snow get that good alfalfa eat that alfalfa and stay alive so they can live on for the next season for three quarters of the year your deer hunters are correct. They'll live out in that wild range, rough stuff. But when the snow gets high, when the winters get cold, when the going gets tough and life or death on the line, they come to the managed areas to eat.
1: I would agree with that. That that kind of backs up some of my experience. I was just, just reminding that um, I had a friend that's never really done a lot of deer hunting. He put up some game cameras out on the ranch and There was one spot that they were getting a lot of action on. he's like, well, why are they all down here? You know, because it's under some trees and there's cool season grass. Well, we haven't seen any action on the ones up north. I said, well, because I grazed that 45 days ago, the cows went through there and cleaned it out. There's nothing, you know, there's no grass up there for the deer to eat. That's why nothing's up there. He says, well, why do you say it's such a great deer area? Well, it is in September, October, because that's when all the acorns and, and the walnuts are dropping. And I guarantee you, hunt deer hunting season. That place is chock full because they're down here eating those eating those acorns and walnuts. And they'll clean up the cool season grass, and they're gone for the rest of the season. That's why there's nothing on your camera. And he's like, "Oh, I understand now."
0: <laughs> and Brian, I think, the, I think the point there is. And that's what I've I've been trying to talk with our DNR on it as well as. Is- It really is. Everybody wants to, and it goes back to what we talked about before. Everybody wants to say, "Okay, tell me the environment exactly that deer thrive on." Okay, it depends. It depends. What you do is you what what you want is you want variety of stuff for seasons of stuff that allow them to thrive at different particular times. If you were to say, "I just want to," I am king. I'm going to make the entire environment to X and not have any alfalfa fields in there, not have any cornfields in there, not have any of these other biodiversity type things, that's where you make the mistake. You wanna have a variety of stuff that allows the wildlife to be creative and feed themselves and the necessities they need, when they need it, how they need it, and not try to have one cookie cutter, I'm gonna buy some state land and we're just gonna let them take care of it the way they want.
1: Yeah. I. You know, the whole state and federal land thing, I can't think of a single piece of land that a state owns or that the federal government owns that I would consider ecologically sound and well-managed.
0: <laughs> I rest the case, exactly. Because they don't, <laughs> don't put the effort towards it. So if you did it right, you'd find within their space, you'd probably have... Some places where alfalfa is planted so that during the toughest and toughest times they can dig down and get it. maybe some corn stock areas where they can nibble down when the corn's, when the snow in our area is three feet high they can get some stuff. They just have it the one way and it just is not smart in terms of how to manage wildlife.
1: For sure, for sure. Well I just have a couple more things and uh, then I'll let you go go about your day. Uh, so another question that I had is how could NCBA better provide assistance to our small mom and pop butcher shops? And as a follow-up to that, could some check-off dollars be spent on butcher training programs, like teaching guys how to run a small meat plant and how to get maximum value out of a carcass rather than, say, stand on a line at you know one of the big plants and just make one cut with their knife? Like, is, is there anything that NCBA could do to bring some of the artisanal skill back to meat cutting
0: yeah that's actually a very good idea they're doing just they're just on the cutting edge of starting to do those programs right now but just uh just so you know how checkoff works any organization that's been around for at least three years can say you know i have a great idea and i want to do this program and i want to get checkoff dollars to do it provided it follows the the law of the land of what checkoff dollars can do which is usually education and end product Anybody, it doesn't have to be NCBA, any organization can force and, and take a stride and do that. So it doesn't have to be NCBA, just FYI. It could be okay. anyone. It's a competitive process. Everybody bids on the issues. And this group of people decide who gets the dollars. Group of producers says, we're going to have dollars go for this. But it's a great idea. As you know, I'm sure, is there's been huge pushes in the government to make funds available for small producer packer facilities. In fact, that's probably been the biggest push over the last since COVID started is what can we do to help economically get some of these small producers started. There's tons of grants. But, you know, the rest of the story is when you involve the government, and we're involving the government, the rules are written so speed and easy access have been just incredibly difficult. So there's tons of money. I mean, billion nearly billions of dollars available but to jump through the hoops necessary to get the dollars unfortunately sometimes is the government maze if you will that uh, you have to do and it requires lots of things that most producers would say you know what you mean to get the extra money i have to do what in their mind may not make perfect sense which is a way that a lot of the government programs work you've probably seen them on grazing areas as well that to get the money you do things that don't make perfect same thing occurs here and that's what you get when you ask government for help and government for money is they put strings on it that may not always make sense and that's the trouble we're in right now is there's lots of money available lots of money available but to get the money and hop over the hurdles is the challenge right now and how we get those hurdles taken away is probably where we need to stay focused.
1: I'm just not in favor of government being involved in a whole lot, but in this case, you know, I, I hope it's doing some good and getting some more smaller facilities open. So one of the last things I want to ask you and, or, or talk about before I let you go and we can get our weeks started today is, and I'll admit, I'm not, I haven't been up on a lot of the recent legislation that's gone through. I've, you know, I'm familiar with the fifty fourteen bill, um, and some of the some of the things that uh, Chuck Grassley uh, was putting yep. up last year, and John Tester was putting up last year, but I'm not so familiar with um, with that type of legislative agenda today. So, what are what are your thoughts, or or from the either from Don's point of view or from NCBAs point of view about Fisher Grassley and market transparency? Yeah,
0: great great question. Yep, and that's a big buzz in. What I like to say, and I believe it in my heart, Fisher and Grassley are doing their darndest to try and do a positive thing for our beef industry. As you outlined earlier, there's absolutely no question right now, current state, packers are getting a huge percentage share of the beef dollar. Way more so if you were dividing it up equitably that they deserve. And so here's a bunch of senators trying to get involved and saying, how do we bring more equity, if you will, into the marketplace? And so they mean well, but let me just remember, I brought up my mother before. Right. I'll bring up my mother again, okay? She tells me, and I'm sure you've heard this saying many a times that uh, the the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Let there be no doubt the intentions are good, okay? The, the, the intentions of the fisher grassley bill are absolutely good. They mean to do well, okay? But here, here's where the problem lies. Do you believe, and, and this is fundamentally, you, you always go into, especially you. you made the comment, there's a lot of things you maybe have a little reluctance to have the government involved in because the government maybe has a way, right, of somehow taking a fairly simple thing and screwing it up a little bit. Okay. I would fall in the camp with you. Okay. So there's a couple of principles then that I stick to real strongly. So I'm going to talk on from my perspective first. One is, and, and maybe your listeners will disagree, is I believe the greatest thing about America, the absolute greatest thing about America is freedom. Okay. The freedom to allow people to do things the way they believe they ought to be done. Okay, so freedom is, I believe, a principle I don't give up very easily. The second thing, and you've heard me mention it many times on this broadcast, and maybe I'm maybe I'm out of line and maybe I'm not woke enough, but I believe capitalism is the other power of America. You leave the economic power of consumers putting dollars in front of people. And ultimately, you usually get the right answer. Okay. So you let the marketplace through capitalism decide which way you ought to go. You let people in their wisdom of freedom based on capitalism decide how things ought to go. Okay, so those are two principles. I believe in strongly. If you look at the biggest hurdle on the Fisher Grassley, it is the government mandating how cattle must be traded it's man the government taking away freedom when you mandate you take away freedom right so it's the government mandating how cattle must be traded now what people get wrong i believe about this is they believe they're mandating the packers okay that's all you hear is the packer is being mandated to buy cattle in this fashion this manner okay okay which is true but if you're when a trade occurs, it's not just a one sided trade, right? There's always a buyer and a seller in a trade. So if you are mandating the packer, by definition, what are you also mandating? The cattleman, the producer to sell in a certain manner. So you're mandating a producer to market his cattle in a certain way, which to me obstructs two things. First, you're taking away his freedom, right? And you're taking away capitalism that allows him to say, from my perspective, dollars are flowing to me in a manner that says I should market them this way or that way, okay? And letting the marketplace decide which way he should market. So again, the most powerful thing about America to me is economic freedom, I combine them together, is the ability to always give your producers economic freedom this portion of the bill absolutely destroys economic freedom for producers. Okay. I understand what they're trying to do they're, And again, it's that whole, the pay the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The intention is, is good. They're trying to say the system's broken, so we have to do something, right? And actually that's a question I got from a Nebraska guy, like actually a gal, maybe three weeks ago, they said, and I, I went through this exact discussion when they said, but Chief buy." look at the system, look what's happening. The Packers are taking too much. And I said, Yes, they are. But because they are doing something wrong, does not is does not make it a wise decision for us to do something that isn't smart. Okay. So and, and that's do, where the breakdown occurs.
1: So if we can agree that the Packers are doing something, quote. Wrong. Yep. What's the remedy? What What's the equitable remedy? Or not even equitable. Let's not even use that word. What's a possible remedy that could work for all parties in that?
0: Well, to me, and this is is, first of all, you have to look at where how we got into the mess, right? And we're in a mess, right? What we did is we allowed too few people to have too much control, right? Yeah. Four people have eighty percent of the control, right?
1: Okay.
0: Two of those four parties are foreign-owned, right? Yes. Okay. Who allowed both those two things to occur?
1: Um, well, I think that there was a, a Republican president and a Democrat president that had something to do with it.
0: It was the government. Yeah. Okay. So the government, in its wisdom, decided this was a smart move. So we we're asking the very people who got us in this terrible position To get us out of it now, but we're taking them even more difficult now we're taking them into marketing and capitalism and involving them in a very different way. The truth of the matter is, we need better whenever you get fewer people okay where they can cheat and steal okay. Usually the right answer is you need more oversight, you got to watch them closer okay you got to make sure they're not doing what they may have the opportunity to do because we let the system get too small or too tight right right? NCBA, along with lots of other organizations, two years, and I believe it's three months ago, asked the DOJ, the government, to look into the Packers, right? And to figure out what is occurring, why it's occurring, and why are they taking an exorbitant amount of dollars relative to their share? The DOJ investigation, right? Yep. Where are we at on that?
1: um i don't think we've heard a whole lot from it or they
0: <laughs> we've heard
1: nothing, in progress right?
0: we've heard nothing okay so that's the role the government should be in right this is the government this is the role we must have the government do right so if you're a guy who's not a huge government guy which is which i'm one of them okay i'm but not one i'm thing- not a
1: big government guy either by any okay. stretch of imagination
0: <laughs> i don't think you are but one of the things you must rely on a government is from the legal standpoint, right? You have to make sure people play fair, right?
1: Enforce laws on the
0: books. Right, so we've asked them to look in and are they playing fair, right? We've asked the government to do their job. Are they playing fair? And they are not giving us an answer, right? So our result, instead of figuring out and forcing them to tell us what the answer is, first of all, what you wanna figure out is, are they playing fair? Let's not prejudge whether they are or not, but let's just say, are they playing fair? And if they aren't playing fair, where are they cheating and how are they cheating? Okay. Because then that becomes the roadmap for corrective stances that we need to do differently, right? To make our industry more competitive, right? Right. What we've done is we've skipped the, way, the part of waiting to figure out are they cheating? And if they're cheating, how are they cheating? So we can make the corrective right answer, if you will. Instead, we've jumped right into capitalism and freedom and said, well, what if we just mandated the way they traded cattle? You follow me? Well, we should be, it should be an all out, almost rebellion with the industry saying, what is the result of this DOJ investigation? We've actually had packers, and I'm sure you've seen this, Starting to settle cases, if you will, which usually means, I'm not saying it always means, but sometimes that means when you settle, you've cheated, right? Yeah,
1: you can't say it, but I can. Yeah, if you settle a case, that means because you know you're going to lose and it's cheaper to settle your way out than to go try to fight it in court.
0: So instead of getting the answer from the government on what they're doing, how they're doing it, we're actually to the process of actually settling things out. Without giving us the answers, that to me is, if our industry doesn't figure out, that's the government's role. That is absolutely their role. And instead, we're putting them in a role that they're not even very good at. They aren't qualified to do it as the solution. Brian, do you see where my frustration exists? We're having them go in an area that they have every possibility of screwing up our world, right? Because they're going into areas, again, our principled areas, freedom and capitalism, that they don't belong in either one of them. They are supposed to be in the legal area and they've done a terrible job of getting us answers
1: there. I, I'm with you 100%. Like I, I don't talk about it a whole lot on a podcast. I am a libertarian. I am anti-big government. I am anti-moral laws. I mean, I, I feel that the government has two basic functions that it does. The government restricts freedom and redistributes wealth and any two things that the government does fall into one of those two categories and i'm with you i'm not in favor of the government coming down and saying this is how you have to trade cattle at the same time you know we're two two years and three months into the into the investigation that ncba has requested that every cattleman that i know of has been standing on the top of their pickup screaming for investigate the packers in the wake of the tyson fire. And we keep hearing the same thing. Well, we don't we don't know anything yet. We don't know anything yet. We don't know anything yet. You know, we're almost two and a half years down the road. I've seen I've had friends that have had to leave the business in the last two and a half years. I know you have too. I mean, we've seen it. We're losing our, we're losing our neighbors at just an absolutely astonishing rate. Not just our ranching neighbors, we're losing our farming neighbors, to selling out, to going broke, uh, to taking their own life. I mean it's it's some of the things going on in agriculture today are just absolutely horrible. and then we have the government on the other hand saying, um, yeah, we've been looking at it for two years. We need some more time to look at the data. It's like, okay, who's paying you? Whose pockets are you in? Like how many shares of JBS and national and Smithfield do y'all own that are still going up and up and up and up every day while you're investigating them?
0: Yeah. And again, the bottom line is, and I think I, I think we're on the same wavelength here pretty strongly. So you're asking somebody who's in, incompetent, for lack of a better term, in an area that they're supposed to be good at, that is the legal part, the DOJ investigation, they almost proven incompetent because of what you said people have gone out of business because they're too slow and they aren't getting to the bottom line. And instead you're asking them to get into our daily business of how cattle are traded when the reality is, and this is the part, remember, because producers trade with Packers, right? If a producer doesn't want to market cattle that way, they can choose to do it a different way, right? There's no law that says they can't change the way they independently want to market cattle. Let, Let the system work and let the capitalism work so that they are allowed to make choices in the best interests of them versus the government. And this whole idea, Brian, of the government picking some number 30% or 50% or whatever. You've heard the numbers, right? Of the mandated trade. Some of it's 30. Do you think they know what number it ought to be?
1: I don't think anybody knows what it ought to be. But I think people are just seeing the problem with alternative markets or seeing problems with alternative marketing arrangements and these deals that aren't necessarily disclosed reduces the volume on the cash market, which the cash market provides the basis for, you know, the formulas and the contracts, you know, when you've depressed the cash market to less than 20% of the active trade, you can't get price discovery at that level. And that's what, you know, that's what the percentages are designed to restore. But I think we both know that because government's involved, even though it says one thing on the title page or the executive summary, you start digging down into the pages of legalese, it's probably going to be 180 degrees out from what we actually need, but have a really catchy title that people can listen to.
0: Well, you and I are on the same page. The other thing I would say, and this is this is where they're missing the mark as well. If you get fundamentally into that problem, what they get at is they mandate numbers, right? Percentages, right? Numbers. I want twenty percent in this region, twenty percent in that region. Anybody who's a capitalist understands numbers doesn't drive competitive nature. What drives competitive nature? How many buyers there are, right? Right. That's not being man- What's being mandated is numbers. So I can meet that number by having one packer, by all that do all their cattle in a non-traded fashion, and another packer do all their cattle in a traded manner, okay? And you meet the 50%. Let's say they did half the market, they meet the 50%, right? Yep. But you don't have two buyers, right? As you know, what we need is the two buyers. That's what we need, right? Is two buyers, not 50% or 20% or 30%. We need more buyers. That's the problem. And I don't know if you've watched the movie uh, uh, Apollo 13. Yes, sir. One of my favorite movies of all time, and I don't know if you recall the scene, there's a scene in there where he gets all the stuff in there. He said, work the problem. Okay. We aren't working the problem. The problem is we don't have enough buyers. We're working and saying, okay, we want 40% of the cattle traded a certain way. The problem is we need more competitors in each area of the business in each region, not how they're traded. We want two buyers. I don't care how they're traded. If they're amas or whatever we need more buyers in every area and that's how competition goes think of a seed stock guy like me okay a bull sale guy does it matter if i private treaty them if i sell them by auction if i sell them by video auction the key for my success is that i have more than one buyer for the bulls right right that's what drives the price it's not how i sell them right doesn't matter if i sell them private treaty it doesn't matter if I sell them by auction. It doesn't matter if I sell them by video auction. What matters to my success is, is there more buyers for my animals? And so this is approaching it in kind of a convoluted way. I mean, I understand, again, it's a good intentions. Don't, please don't take anything away from the good intentions part. But boy, I don't think you wanna be able to undo this thing 10 years from now when you say, boy, we involved the government in this, for what reason again?
1: Probably not a good idea. I I'm not sure I could sit here and tell you more than one thing, or even one thing, that has gotten better, cheaper, more effective, or more efficient since the government got involved.
0: Yeah, and and, and that's that's the point I'm at. I'm guess I, I I'm I'm not a libertarian, I guess, but I am a person who believes in freedom and I believe in capitalism, and I believe on this God's green earth, what makes America great are those two things, okay? And if you are giving away your principles on either one of those things in the neighbor of fixing a problem, the odds of the problem being fixed are not good.
1: Good stuff. Good stuff. Are you ready to uh, to get out of here and start your week, Don?
0: Yes, I need to go actually feed cattle.
1: I got to go do the same thing. I really appreciate you making the time to join me this morning and, uh, and sit down and, and have this conversation. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad we had a great conversation, Don.
0: Yeah. And hopefully everybody sees me and the organization I represent in maybe a different light. I hope they understand that, you know, all my chips are in this industry. And what I want everybody to understand clearly, Brian, is if the industry is going in the wrong direction, Nobody pays the price more severely than a family operation like yours or mine, right? That right? I have no interest in making this thing not going in the right direction. So I'm doing my darndest. If any of your listeners have thoughts for me, I'm welcome to listen to them. Hopefully they get a, just a little bit of a, who this guy is, how he thinks fundamentally, and maybe they think uh, the organization is maybe a little different than they might have thought previously.
1: And that's what I was. that's what I hope we got out today. So before we close it out, um, where can people find you on our internet? How can people get in touch with you?
0: So my email is uh, D as in Don. Then the first part of my last name, which is Shefel, S-C-H-I-E-F-E-L. Stop at the L. At Meltel, M-E-L-T-E-L dot N-E-T, NET. So Melrose telephone abbreviated, meltel.net.
1: I'll make sure it gets in the show notes. So you don't have to, y'all didn't have to write that down. Any Anywhere else we you need to send people or uh, email?
0: And go to uh, beef.org. If you want to see about NCBA, if you want to look at our policy books and and see what really drives us, look at our policy book. Engage yourself in our policy book. And if there are items you believe we need to go differently, and I'm, again, I haven't agreed on every policy item here with NCBA as well, but that's why you build majorities. You come to the meetings, you do what you and I did here. You discuss it, you debate things, you interchange ideas, and hopefully at the end of the discussion, you find a path forward that both of us can agree to, right? And hopefully yes, that's what they come to our organization and do.
1: That's how progress gets made.
0: Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate you doing what you do.
1: Well, thank you for joining me today, Don, and uh, y'all gang, have a great week.